0: The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and this is episode number 257. Just a reminder to please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and give us a thumbs up. Give us a good review, not because we're looking for praise, but because we like to think that the stories that we tell in the podcasts that we do help people who are mired in the horrific pandemic of addiction. So when you do that, when you give us a good review, or when you subscribe on at YouTube and give us a thumbs up, then Google likes that and Google helps people find our podcast. And that's how we can help people. Today we have an interview with an author. His name is Peter E. Murphy. And he, um, by the time this podcast airs, he will be like a week shy of his 50th year of sobriety after waking up in a gutter when he was 21. He's the founder of Murphy Writing of Stockton University. He has been a consultant for numerous organizations, including the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Educational Testing Service, and countless school districts from coast to coast. He is in the process of writing his memoir, which is called Once Upon a Time You Lived in a Castle. And I will be sure and have him tell us when his memoir is published. But for now, let's talk to Peter Murphy. Peter Murphy, thank you so much for being willing to tell your story on the podcast today.
0: Well, thank you, Jeannie, and thank you for having me.
1: Okay. so. Start back at the beginning. Where did you grow up and um, what was your life like before drugs or alcohol?
0: Yeah. Um, I said Jeannie. I meant Joanne. So, it's so Joni. Funny.
1: It's actually Joni, but it's okay. Oh. I'm going to answer to whatever you say.
0: <laughs> um, I was born in Wales. Uh, I was a war baby. My father was an American GI who met my mother during the war. And she was. Uh, they met at a pub called the Windsor Castle Hotel at a small town in Wales called uh, Newport. And uh, after the war, my father went back and to Wales and married her and uh, they moved to the United States and my mother wasn't happy, Um, moved back to Wales where I was born, back to United States, back to Wales, back to United States. And that's where I grew up from the age of three on. I grew up in New York City. And uh, shortly after that, uh, my mother died. I didn't know why she died. I was seven years old at the time and didn't find out till I was um, in my 20s that she had committed suicide. Um, mm. and, um, but that sort of, uh, perhaps the, uh, the trajectory that my life had during those first few years of my life. Um,
1: uh, you were was, so young to lose your mom. I mean, yeah. seven. Wow.
0: And I thought it was my fault. Um, all of a sudden, um, uh, we were taken away from her actually before my brother and I, older brother, and didn't know why all of a sudden we weren't living with uh, my parents anymore. And, you know, you're a stupid little kid. Nobody tells you anything. And, um, so I didn't know what I had done, but then, um, I didn't know if I'd ever see my parents again or the toys that I had. That was the big deal, the toys. Whatever toys I had, I never saw them again. (laughs) That was a big loss. My mother, too. But the toys.
1: (laughs) Peter, did you find out why they took you away? Was it because your mother had some kind of issues?
0: Uh, When I started um, really concentrating on finding my mother's story, which was maybe about 10 or 15 years ago, I started writing about it. And uh, I found my family in Wales, um, which I had lost a long time ago. And uh, people were finally willing to talk. And uh, my father was willing to talk before he died about 15 years ago. And uh, my mother had gotten seriously, seriously depressed. Mm. Uh, my family in Wales was surprised at this. They hadn't seen her since, uh, you know, she had been a young girl. She was happy. She was living in this bucolic area. And uh, when I found out the story that she became, uh, you know, I, I call it a great sadness, overwhelmed her um, and also found out from my father that she began to drink heavily. And um, she would have um, she kicked out my father as well, not just got rid of us, but kicked out my father and uh, she would have the grocery boy bring up uh, alcohol um, to the apartment that she was living in. This was the early 1950s, um, along with the groceries. And uh, so she just sank deeper and deeper. What I think the reason is, and I'm not sure about this, the only thing I have been uh, two things I've been trying to understand is that she had been born in Wales in the early 1920s. And the woman who was raised as her sister turned out to actually be her mother. Oh. And this was a matter of great shame in the little valley, the little village where she was from. And uh, w- when she began to suspect this, uh, the sister would never admit she was her mother. And what I found out from the relatives in Wales is that uh, she had, uh, they had this blowout argument, the really fierce argument in 1953, she left Wales and uh, that was the last time she spoke with her family. And, um, I think that's what led to her um, her sadness and uh, finally giving up on life.
1: Wow. I'm sorry to hear that. So, okay, so you're seven years old, you and your brother. Who did you live with? Where did you go? Were you put in foster care or?
0: We, uh, we were sent to a home in, in Staten Island. It was a Catholic boarding school. And uh, it was, um, I believe very much, I was taught, raised in the Catholic religion, pardon me. <clears throat> and I believed the very strong vision of heaven and hell i was learning about hell in school and this place was so bad and they beat me frequently i thought i must have i must be in hell but i was confused because i didn't remember dying and i thought you had to die to be in hell (laughs) it's just Mm. very confused and um so we were there for a while and uh finally after my brother and i we ran away twice we didn't get very far and then an aunt took us in and she lived in queen's And um, one funny thing is that we were put in a public school. And at that time in the United States, they had prayer in public schools. And so it was very similar to the Catholic schools. We're saying different kinds of prayers. And I thought, okay, so I'm no longer a Catholic. I must be a public, Uh, that this was a new religion I belonged to. But I was very concerned because the Catholics talked about hell. So I knew what to do and what not to do to um, get out of Catholic hell but the publics were very tricky. They didn't tell me about public health. So I was afraid I was gonna wind up in public health without knowing what I did wrong. Um, wow. And so after a few years of having relative stability and uh, living in public health, <laughs> fear of public health, <laughs> um, my, my father remarried. And uh, so I was reunited with my father after, I guess, um, three or four years and a stepmother and a new family. And um, things were okay, but um, then I was molested by a priest for about a year. Uh, and again, the Catholic thing set in and I figured, well, he's a priest, so he can't be doing
1: me. anything wrong.
0: Oh, so it must be me because it felt wrong. It felt wrong. It felt dirty. And I felt so uh, evil. I must be the sinner here because it could not possibly be him. And I didn't know what I did wrong. But And how uh, old was,
1: were you then, Peter?
0: I was 11. Ugh. I was 11 and it lasted on and off for about a year. Um, and um, that's so messed up.
1: I, I, uh, yeah, that's it, so messed up.
0: It, yeah but it was normal that's was i thought this i didn't think anything was strange i just figured okay whatever happened but part of my warped idea is that um because i knew i was constantly sinning that uh, i went to confession every saturday first of all I, I would meet with the priest every saturday morning and then that afternoon i would go to confession with the same priest <laughs> and um wow. I, I i thought uh, because i believed this so stringently so so directly so literally that i I thought maybe the best thing could happen to me is to die on Saturday afternoon, right after I go to confession, because that way I knew I'd go to heaven. Um, So when I was about uh, 15, uh, I decided um, I don't think any of this makes any sense. And I also found out from one of my um, one of the other kids in the neighborhood. He said, hey, did you know Father Smith was queer? And uh, I said, no, it's impossible. And then it hit me because I understood what the words (laughs) meant. And that is when I understood what had happened to me four years earlier. It made complete sense to me at that point. Right. And um, I decided, ah, okay. And I began to question everything, everything. And as I began to question um, life, question how I was raised, question how I was taught, question what I believed, I fell in love with two things. I fell in love with um, drinking and I fell in love with poetry, Mm. which was a strange thing. And um, I didn't know anything about poetry. I hadn't read any poetry. I just started writing these. um, I actually started writing folk songs parodies. And I ran out of parodies. And I started writing and it wasn't a parody. And I was no, no, it must be a poem. And I didn't know anybody who did this. But I felt this was also going to get me in trouble. I can't share this with my friends. They'd beat me up. But it made sense to me. I was um, I was expressing myself, which um, nobody really cares. And, um, But it, made, it meant something to me. I had nothing else in my life that really meant something to me. So I continued to do it. And I made a couple of stupid decisions, a couple more stupid decisions. So the first one was I decided I could either be Catholic or I could be happy. And I decided I want to be happy, so no more Catholicism. I questioned God, and I figured, well, God wasn't there for me. I'm not going to be there for God. I never heard the word agnosticism or atheism, but I was was probably more of an agnostic. And um, as the next few years of high school went on, and I drank more and more, and I began to write more and more and learn more about poetry, I realized, okay, I have to make another decision. I didn't think a poet could be happy. So I decided I could either be a poet or it could be happy. And I decided I'm going to be a poet. And um, <laughs> I described that part of my life as early derelict period. Um, you know, and- I have
1: to add an editorial comment, Peter. I'm sorry. But when you say you you felt it was a stupid decision to leave the Catholic Church, based on your history with the Catholic Church, I I wouldn't call it stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, I you know, maybe questionable in terms of the overall, you know, the overall subject of your relationship with God. But at that moment, I, you know, I can see why you'd make that decision. No, I'm just saying.
0: No. Yeah, no, that's that's true. And I was also going to a Catholic high school, which didn't help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, um,
1: Okay, so now Uh, your derelict period is
0: what you started to say. That was early derelict period.
1: Okay.
0: And I was drunk most of the time when I was a senior in high school, and I scared myself so silly, I decided to stop drinking. I mean, I really got into um, uh, a really bad thing, and I managed to stop for three weeks. And I will say that was the worst three weeks of my life until that point. (laughs) And I said, okay, that's not working. So I started drinking again and uh, managed to get into uh, college. And flunked out and decided I need to get into another college where I'd be drafted. This was 1968 and flunked Mm. out. Got into a third college and flunked out and figured, all right. Um, But then they came out the lottery system. So I drew a high number. And uh, I call this period of my life mid-derelict period uh, because I made what I thought was a smart decision after flunking out of three colleges. I went to work at a bar um and i know one of your other guests uh the i don't remember his name mike i think he was a who was a runner he ran uh, during his sobriety he also talked about working in a bar and
1: yeah as an alcoholic he, yeah right. questionable yeah i was
0: saying that was a good decision <laughs> <laughs> and i thought well it was a brilliant decision <laughs> that was mid derelict derelict period um that lasted for about three years and i got in more and more trouble and i, I had uh, more and more blackouts and uh I remember showing up at work one day and the boss was yelling at me and I said, I'm here on time. What are you yelling about? I said, No, you're a day late. I said, what do you mean I'm a day late? <laughs> That's impossible. You know, <laughs> what day is it? He said, it's Wednesday. No, it's Tuesday. And uh, I couldn't believe I lost a day like that. And that wasn't the first time. And mm. I began to lose a lot of time like that. Um, I got involved with a, a woman who um, came into the bar one night and she was a great dancer. And turns out, that, as she said, uh, we started talking. She came to my part of the bar and I was serving her drinks. And she uh, was a professional dancer. I didn't know what kind of that. Well, maybe ballet. But I found out later on she was a go-go dancer. Ah. Um, yeah. And she had just gotten out of a psychiatric hospital where she kicked a heroin habit. Um, so I taught her to drink. So this became a, a very, very um, terrible relationship. And I don't want to give any impression that she ruined me. I think we were ruining each other at this point.
1: It was toxic, Uh, toxic relationship. It was bad for
0: both of us. And uh, I kept breaking up with her and I would go back like 10 minutes later. It didn't work. Um, And uh, we hit several uh, negative points, but one of them is um, she got me, this is going to sound ridiculous. So forgive me for this, but uh, it's true. A thousand dollars in debt to a mafia connected dentist. Um, And. Yeah, I know, I know. It's uh, right, so. Here's how it happened. So we're at a movie theater, and this is the old days where they have this soda machine where the cup comes down and the ice and the syrup. You remember those? You're, you remember them? The young people won't know what I'm talking about. And so in comes the ice and the syrup, and she sees a screw drops into the cup, mm-hmm. and she picks up. I didn't see it, but she picks up the cup and starts make, drinking it, and then starts screaming in the middle of the lobby. And um, then the movie manager comes over and she says, uh, spits out the screw. You broke my tooth. Blah blah blah. And he's all nervous, so we're filling out these insurance forms or something, a claim form, and uh, we get into the car, and I still don't know what's going on. And she says, "You got to find me a dentist who's going to go along with this. We're going to make a lot of money. We're going to sue them." And I was like, "What?" <laughs> so uh, I find her a dentist. Somebody where I work um, knows knows a dentist who uh, who will go along with this. And uh, the bar that I was working, it was was connected as well. You know, there were people that came in. Big Ralph came in every. Every week for an envelope of four hundred bucks, and so anyway, the dentist decides to go along with this, and he does—he fixes her teeth, he fixes my teeth, he gives this bill for a thousand dollars, and uh, the girl completely forgets about this. She's no longer interested. The paperwork gets lost, and I keep getting phone calls from an associate of the uh, dentist. Hey, you don't pay up, you don't do the right thing. So, I got to a state where um, I was terrified. I didn't know what to do, so I ran away. What else What else would a man do except run away? So I ran away and I didn't know where to go. And so um, I knew I was born in Wales, but I didn't know anything about it because my mother died when I was so young. But I got myself a passport. I managed to um, get an address book for my father for, that was 20 years old of the connections. And I went to Wales. And when I got to London, I realized nobody on the entire continent knows what a fuck up I am. Nobody knows <laughs> Who I am, and maybe I can remake my life, maybe I can change my life. And it worked for a little bit, but thus begins mid uh, late early period. <laughs> so um nine months later, um, I was living in a commune in Cardiff, Wales. I had found my family, I had made friends, and I was living in this commune, and my name with that my name was Gadney Morgan from Caffilly. I had already, you know, had this alias. And I uh, woke up, not for the first time in the gutter, covered in my urine, and uh, decided um, I was 21 years old. This is not how I am. Um, I, I know you call your, your your podcast, The Addiction Pocket, the point of no return. This was the point. Um, the night before, uh, I was trying to kill myself. I had three decisions. I decided to immediately get my ear pierced kill myself or join this religion that i heard of in ireland a few months earlier but a new religion that seemed to make sense to me and it all seemed about equal throw myself off the top of this building no i'll get my ear pierced. no join the religion and so i decided all right let me try to kill myself by drinking and um you know drinking even more mm-hmm. And so when i woke up the next morning um it didn't work i was still alive and um decided to go to this meeting for this this religion and um while i was there um I realized whether I liked it or not, I believed it, but I could never live to the, up to their expectations. They believed in God and they didn't drink. And I said, well, even the Catholics drink, you know? Um, and I was talking to one of the people, uh, you know, who had uh, just given a talk and he said, well, why don't you become part of us? Why don't you join us? And I said, I don't want to be a hypocrite. You know, I can't live this life. And he said, if you believe it and don't join, you're more of a hypocrite than if you join and try to live it, but can't make up to it. And he, he just called me hypocrite. <laughs> <laughs> and I had the shakes. I was waiting for the pubs to open around 11 in the morning. This was close to 11. And I started shaking even more that um, I realized he was right.
1: You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out, if you have a story you would like to share with us, Go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com, or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 727 314 7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five star review sometimes. The hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. The service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby.
0: I was terrified even more. That if I joined this religion, I, I wouldn't drink. I mean, how does that even work? So um, in order to join this, the, the religion, you, there's no formal rituals or anything. You sign a card that says you believe in what it what it what it teaches. So I said okay. So I tried signing the card, but it was shaking so badly they asked me they they couldn't read it. They said, "Would you mind signing a second one?" <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> then would you mind signing it a third time? <laughs> and I said, I, "I understand if you don't want me, but I'm not going to do it a third time." And um, they uh, they said, "Okay, we'll we'll work it out." And um, so I realized that uh, the 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 people believed that God had sent a new messenger who was bringing new teachings that would unite the world. And I figured, all right, if I believe that what they're saying is true, that means I have to believe the teachings which say don't drink. I didn't know how to do that. And I never heard of um, 12 steps. I didn't know, never heard of one day at a time. But I decided I'm not going to drink today. I'm not going to go to a pub I was planning to go to. And I don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow, but I'll worry about it tomorrow. And um, I didn't drink that day. And the next day I woke up and said, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm not going to drink today. And I'm not going to drink the next day. And I, I just worked it out. And I realized the religion also said, you have to obey the law of the country you're living in. Well, I was there illegally for the last eight months or seven months. My visa expired. I didn't know I was still a British citizen. I had dual citizenship. I had no idea, which is why I changed my name to Gaddy Morgan. So they couldn't track me down if they were looking for Peter Murphy. (laughs) Um, So I returned to the United States and decided I had to um, try to become a better person, try to grow up, try to make friends with my family. And so I did. And I tried to, at that point, I was lucky enough to, I love the word fashion to fashion a new life Mm. and uh, the thing that had led me I left out a whole lot of details here but um, the thing that led me to where I got that point was poetry it led me from place to place literally in Britain where I was learning more about poetry and it it guided me to place to place and that sort of became what I wanted to do with my life is somehow become a poet and um, teach poetry to, to others and as a way of service as a way of helping them to figure out their lives so that's that's my story.
1: Wow. How long have you been sober?
0: Ah, my anniversary, coming up, my 50th anniversary. Wow. March 25th, 2022. Wow. Which is one reason I reached out to you is that I decided, um, I think I needed to share my story. Um, I, I, you know, it's still tentative. I'm not sure if we're going to be able to. <laughs> I'm not going to bring today, but.
1: <laughs> I, you know, I I applaud you because you, you, You've made it this far, and I understand that it's one day. I I like to say that there's a, a gentleman that I follow on Instagram, and he is on the he lives on the Isle of Man, and every day he posts and he says today is day number five hundred and twenty, and then he'll put something in there, and then tomorrow he'll go today is day number five twenty one. Wonderful. And and you know, and it it's if that works for you, that's how you do it. That's that's mm-hmm. just. That's how you do it. So, okay. So you, you went back to the U.S. Did you have to do anything about the mafia money or did that kind of go? No, uh,
0: yeah. That was the first thing I did was paid them off.
1: Oh, okay. Okay. you so
0: <laughs> took me over a year. But I I called up and I said, "Look, I'm sorry. <laughs> please, please don't break my legs." <laughs>
1: yeah, I'll pay. <laughs> I'll pay. And
0: I did. I paid the I paid the vig, which is the interest. Well, I don't even remember what it was. Now it was 50 years ago, but but I did that. It was the first thing I did.
1: <laughs> okay, okay, good. So now you're not worried about someone coming and breaking that, your legs.
0: Yeah. We, so, we worked out an agreement. So. <laughs>
1: so, were you then working as a poet? Were you publishing? Um, how how no. was that going?
0: Yeah. Well, I. I, what did I do in my life at that point I worked as a bartender I had several part-time jobs and I had work construction um, and I knew I didn't want to go back to the bar because that I knew was I was not going to be able to make it and I didn't want to hang out with, with most of my old friends because you know that was the life I was trying to leave right live, uh, live leave so um, I was able to get a job working construction uh, operating heavy equipment uh, through my father. And I worked for one week and then the union went out on strike um, oh. for six months. So I drove a cab around Manhattan and that turned out to be good. It was um, um, romantic and frustrating and stressful at all at the same time. The Harry Chapman song, I don't know if you remember the song Taxi from back in the early 70s, it had just come out um, about a taxi driver who has this romance and sees this girl from years before and she gives him a $20 tip. Anyway, so that was that sort of added to it. Um, but uh, when I went back to work at construction, um, it was a way of earning money. And my goal was to move out of New York City, which um, to me, I had to do in order to, to help maintain my uh, sobriety, and I didn't even know the word sober, just so I could help not drinking, not, not talking with the, not being with the people. And um, I needed a job, I needed money, and uh, that was my goal. Um, and I did it for the next three or four years, uh, on and off, mostly on. And um, I was working at one job in central Manhattan and went into a bookstore and picked up a book called Wishes, Lies and Dreams, Teaching Poetry Writing to Children by a fellow named Kenneth Koch. And I read this book and I said, that's what I want to do. I want to teach poetry writing to children. But what do I have to do? I have to Mm. go to college. And I didn't think I could do that. I thought, you know, I was I was not good at this, but I decided I have a new life. I have this spiritual background. I'm really trying to understand. I have these people. I've been going I, going to meetings with this new religion in Manhattan. There was a Baha'i center there. There was Baha'i, Baha'i faith. I'm not okay. sure if you knew uh,
1: it. I didn't ask you, but I'm yeah, yeah. thanks for clarifying.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, there was a Baha'i center there, and it had a lot of young people, and I had a car. So after I would drive around the city in my cab, and after working construction a day, I would go and pick up some of the other uh, Baha'i young people, and we'd drive to meetings. And I would ask them questions. I would try to understand what I was reading in the Baha'i book, but I needed to talk. So I was getting lessons from these other people who knew what they were talking about. And um, I decided I'm going to try to um, try this college thing again. So I decided Queens College, let me go there. And uh, one of the things I read in the Baha'i writings is that agriculture is important. Hmm. So I figured, let me start with agriculture. I didn't know what agriculture was. I mean, I... Didn't have much of an education. In New right? York
1: City? I, know. <laughs>
0: so that's exactly what they said. I yeah. said. They said, what do you want to study, kid? I said, agriculture. They said, do you see any farms around here? I said, no. What, is, what does that have to do with agriculture? <laughs> so I felt totally, totally humiliated and uh, wanted to get out of there as quickly as I can. I said, what do you have that's close? <laughs> so the guy says, geology. <laughs> <laughs> so I registered for geology for... And I took geology and it made sense. Um, My name, Peter, means rock. And all of a sudden, I fell in love with this. You know, the rocks, it just everything was logical. It was the first science course I had ever taken. I took it for a whole year and I got A's. Um, And and I loved it. Um, But I realized also if I was going to pursue this, I need to take real sciences like, you know, biology and chemistry. And I knew I couldn't do that. embarrassing part there's so much of this is embarrassing I can talk about it now but (laughs) I also had to take a writing placement test and I think no problem I'm a writer right and I failed it so miserably I was put in the lowest level composition class where I was one of three native English speakers Ah. Uh, and I was very you know this has got to be a mistake so I I went to the head of the um, English department and I said obviously you made a mistake let me look they looked at my paper and they said, no, <laughs> you belong there.
1: <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, it was
0: it was bad. But um, I realized after sitting there like this for a few weeks that, wait a minute, I, I don't know what that is. And I started paying attention. And I realized I was full of crap. I didn't know what it, I did. I called myself a writer, but I didn't know what I was doing. Mm. And so um, I managed at the end of the year to get an A in that course as well. And I decided, OK, I can do this college thing. And so I was going to college at night for a couple of years, and uh, working construction in the day. And then tragedy happened. I fell in love.
1: <laughs> tragedy? <laughs> uh, tragedy? Oh, no. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah I no, know, I know. Well, that's, that's always a bad sign. My history had been a bad. So, anyway, so I I was with a uh, going to a Baha'i conference out in Oklahoma City, and I was with a, another young Baha'i woman who was a Baha- who was a poet, and we were reading our poems back and forth. And uh, there was a woman sitting across the aisle also going to the same conference and she was listening and said, Oh, I love poetry. And uh, we got married a year and a day later. Um, And uh, she didn't love poetry. She'd lied to her teeth, but that's Uh, the only lie I've ever known her to tell. We've been married almost 50 years, 48 years. I'm not sure if it's going to last, but so far so good. Um, (laughs) So not uh, so much a tragedy. No, no, not at all. But uh, i like to joke around that. uh, You know, about that. That's
1: funny. That is a funny story. You guys have kids?
0: We have a daughter who is uh, now. Uh, a, we are, I'm now a grandfather. My daughter um, was uh, probably the best thing that happened in my in my life. She's just uh, wonderful and has been a great spirit and a great companion, and uh, and and a model for me how to live my life. I mean, which is which is really great. A balance. And my grandson um, is three years old. Oh, we did have an argument though. His name is Will. Okay. And um, I wanted him named after. Um, Uh, Wordsworth, William Wordsworth, and she said, "No, he's named after William Shakespeare." And so (laughs) we argued about this. And she said, "You know, so in my mind, it's still still Wordsworth." You know, (laughs) he doesn't care; he's just named Will as far as he knows. But exactly, uh, uh, I'll I'll tell him what an evil person his mother is later on. So
1: (laughs) (laughs) well, I applaud you for your fifty years. Now, are you teaching now? Are you teaching poetry to young people? That was kind of your goal.
0: I actually, I spent uh, college number five. (laughs) Graduated from, and I majored, finally had the guts to major in literature, which I did, and I taught uh, English and creative writing at Atlantic City High School in the uh, coast of New Jersey here for 29 years. Wow. And, uh, have many, many students um, who went on to become writers, who are poets themselves, fiction writers, nonfiction writers, teachers, professors, and so um, sort of a lucky guy, and, and a lot of them stay in touch. I mean, it's like, leave me alone, leave me alone. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they send emails, they tell me about what they're doing, they ask how I'm doing, they're sort of like this local parentist. they're looking after me all the time. Um, and so um, I retired from that, but then I'd also been adjuncting at uh, Stockton University nearby, um, uh, teaching uh, whatever I basically I wanted to, uh, composition I started at first and then teaching creative writing classes. And um, on my own, I started teaching workshops for teachers and other writers about maybe 30 years ago, More than mm-hmm. more than that. And um, one of the things I had trouble with when I was teaching full time is how do I find time to write? And most writers have trouble with that. And there's this, you know, there's jobs that get in the way, and this awful thing, families that get in the way. They want to be with you. This, you know, mm-hmm. and it's so hard. So I, I in the mid '80s and early '90s, for a number of summers, um, I went to artist colonies to write, and the, they it's wonderful. You spend a month writing, and they bring you food, and you don't have to worry about anything. The trouble is when you go home, <laughs> nobody does that. You know, you have to go to work, you have to cook your own food, you know, to be with that. So I decided um, back, I guess, around 1989 or 90, I started renting a hotel room one weekend a, a month and I went away and I created my own little artist colony and it worked and I began to publish more and more and I was writing stuff that I liked and I was doing more workshops and as I was doing more workshops, um, people said, well, how do you find time to write? And I said, I rent a hotel room one week a month and... Um, so people said, I wish I could go with you. And after hearing this enough, um, I stupidly made the decision. Let me bring people with me one time. So I rented a block of hotels at a resort town on the Jersey shore called Cape May, New Jersey, and uh, invited people to come with me. And I called it the Winter Poetry Getaway. And I was hoping to get 15 people or I was going to lose a lot of money. And I had 20.
1: Oh, wow. So,
0: I know. It's like, oh, OK. And uh, the following year, I was going to do it again. But then people that said, I don't write poetry. I write prose. Can I come? So I said, well, all right. So I called <laughs> it the winter poetry. And I put and prose in parentheses. And they didn't like the parentheses part. So we did it a third year and got without the parentheses. So it went from 20 people the first year to within seven years, over 200.
1: Wow.
0: And I had no time to write anymore because I was doing this uh-huh. all the time. And I wasn't. teaching. <laughs> the and um, then. um uh, when I retired, um, I brought my daughter on that that brilliant young woman I was mentioning a few years ago. And I figured she would, you know, she was really smart. She could file and stuff like that. Well, no, she was smarter than that. <laughs> we wound up growing it even more. We started doing workshops up and down the eastern coast in Florida and New Hampshire and Europe.
1: Wow. And, um,
0: and no more time to write anymore. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and um about seven years ago, um uh Stockton University uh made an offer that they wanted to acquire Murphy writing. And so uh we didn't know what that meant. I never heard of a university uh, acquiring a private business, but we negotiated, and they—they uh, they now it's Stockton University. Uh, sorry, Murphy Writing of Stockton University, and they hired myself, my daughter, and the other employees that I had, and now it's—it's uh, it's been a good match. So wow! That's
1: well, so congratulations on the success of that.
0: Thank you. It's strictly an accident because I didn't mean to do it. As I mentioned, it's just like okay, well, these people want to come with me for a weekend.
1: You did what you—you you did what you were passionate about. And I think that, that that makes a huge difference. Do you know, I mean, you'd gotten clean and sober and you found your passion and you kind of moved ahead with it. And typically when you do that, other people want to follow along because they admire it. I admire it.
0: No, oh, thank you. Thank you. You're
1: welcome. You're yeah. welcome. And you're writing a memoir?
0: Right. It's, um, I, uh, I've been, what happened in, um I mentioned earlier that I found out my mother had killed herself um yeah. And it was about two years after I got sober, and at that point, my father had gotten sober recently as well. Uh, He had been um, a lifelong drinker. His father had been his father before him. I can go back to my great grandfather on my mother's side, father's side, and my great 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 grandparents on my mother's side. Alcohol and all ends. And um, my father had a heart attack and decided to change his life. So he um, he stopped drinking, and uh, we had our first conversation as adults. Um, Mm And I asked about my mother. I said, well, you know, what was she like? And what happened? And it's when he told me she killed herself. And I was so shaken. I had no idea that um, I buried it. I didn't talk to anybody. I didn't tell my wife that this happened. And that sort of thing doesn't stay buried. And so after about 15 years or 12 years at that point, two things happened. I started up drinking dreams, um, which um, I've been sober enough almost 15 years. And all of a sudden i drink, wake up in the middle of the night and uh, I want to drink and it scared the hell out of me. And um, I started dreaming about my mother and she wanted uh, me to pay attention too. So it was either start drinking or do something else. So I started writing and I started writing about it in poetry. And uh, the thing about poetry, you can disguise it with myths and fairy tales and other stuff like that. And I did that and that seemed to work. I was discovering a lot because I, you know, as a kid I wanted to write to express myself, but when I realized that you know nobody really cares, I didn't really care. I started writing to discover and reveal and understand. Um, And it's what writing can do. It's a process of not just writing what you know, but writing to explore. And um, I have a friend who's a terrible friend. She wanted me to do more. And she wanted me to write a a memoir. And so I said, all right, after she nagged me for a couple of years. So I started writing a memoir. And I figured this, I don't have to be in my own memoir. This is about my parents. It's their story. So I called it uh, D-Day, A Love Story. And uh, so after a couple of years, she asked uh, to read part of it. And she said, where are you in the story? I said, well, I'm not in the story. She said, well, why not? I said, well, I don't want to be in my memoir. <laughs> so she called me on it again. <laughs> and I tried again. And the, the new version was called, um, uh, called You Go to My Head. And it comes from the title of a jazz standard from World War II um, that was popular in Europe at the time, in Britain. And it's about the intoxication of love and alcohol. And I feel this is a good theme. And so I worked with that for a number of years and got to um, a point where I just um, didn't know where to go next. And so the new title became Next. (laughs) And uh, worked on that for about a year or two. And uh, the final title, the one that I know this is the good title is called Once Upon a Time You Lived in a Castle. And it incorporates several things. One is this sort of fairy tale aspect, uh, the little boy growing up uh, without a parent, you know, like in all the Walt Disney movies, the mother dies and, you know, the, the evil stepmother and all this other stuff the mythical past, there's all of the forest that he has to go through to kill the monsters and demons. And then the literal part, I mentioned earlier that um, the pub where my parents met was called the Windsor Castle Hotel. Mm-hmm. So there really is a castle.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: when I returned to Wales, uh, when I was 20 years, when I was 20 years old that time, that's the first place I went to Wales was to the Windsor Castle Hotel. And of course, nobody knew who they were. Um, I did find my family at that time. And, um, and over the years, I, I keep going back to the Windsor Castle Hotel in order to try to I don't know, get a feeling about my mother. And I was even even able to turn, convince the new owners to let me go upstairs into the apartment where I lived. Oh, wow. And the place was a ranch. It was a real mess. It was falling apart. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I was able to do that. And it was just lovely just uh, to be there. And um, I felt close to my mother, even though she hadn't been there in 70 years, whatever, how many years. But it was a connection. And my earliest memory, when I was about three, was um, being up there looking out I was standing on a piano bench looking out the window down at these men loading kegs of beer into the pub they were rolling it down and I was fascinated and I didn't see there's a woman I just still don't know who the woman is sneaked up behind me I thought she snuck, I snuck up and smacked me on the bottom and yelled at me for standing on a piano bench um <laughs> and it's my earliest memory
1: oh okay
0: yeah so I think about why why do I remember that you know from almost 70 years ago and I think well this is a long chart. This is probably not true, but it's my imagination It works. Um, three streams that had um, gone through my early life was trouble with um, women, trouble with violence and trouble with alcohol. Mm-hmm. So why not? All three of those in that one little anecdote.
1: <laughs> Very cool. Well, Peter, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I mean, you know, great on your career, but even more great on almost, fifth, well, by the time this goes up, basically 50 years clean and sober. I know it's not easy, um, but you're doing it one day at a time and that's kind of the way it has to go. And, you know, you're helping others write and be creative and, you know, I, I love that. Thank you. For...
0: Well, thank you. Thank you and thanks for having me and bless you.
1: Thank you so much for listening today. I thought Peter's story was a good one in that it's an inspiring story. It um, breaks my mother's heart to hear about what he went through as a child and no child should have to go through that. And, um, Anyway, he pulled out of the alcoholism. He's almost 50 years clean and sober and you know, he's really turned his life around and he's helping other people, you know, achieve their goals in terms of writing. So it's a good story. I hope that it gives you some kind of inspiration that sobriety is possible and that you can absolutely turn your life all the way around. And if, if it's not you that's addicted, if it's a loved one, they can turn their life around. However, If they're not reaching that point of no return on their own and you're not reaching it on your own, you need to reach out for help. Okay. There are interventionists, there are organizations, there are churches, you can get help, but you have to ask for it. We'll be back again next week. We're closing in on the end of our fifth year. Thank you so much for listening.
0: You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.